may be seated. As you do so, I encourage you to join me now in taking your God, copy of God's Word, your personal copy of God's Word, and, and we'll turn together to our passage for this week and, and our spiritual food for this week as well. And that's found in Acts 4, 23-31. So Acts 4, verses 23-31. As we saw last week in our passage, it started to get real for the early church. Up until that point, things have been going smoothly for them. They were able to, to share the gospel. There was a number of conversions. People were responding positively to their gospel ministry. Until that day that Peter and John go to the temple to pray. As they go in, there's the lame beggar. And they heal this beggar in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so with that healing, along with the gospel preaching and ministry and all the conversions... We find the early church is now on the radar of the Jewish Jewish religious leaders and authorities, the same leaders and authorities who had crucified Jesus Christ. So it's dire circumstances. They know who is now paying attention to them. And so the question that's implied here then is, how will they respond? How will they respond in this gospel ministry, the one that these... These leaders, these ones who have so much authority, the ones that they, they put their Jesus to death. Which means there's, there's that sure certainty that, that something similar will happen to them. How will the early church respond to this? Will they continue in that boldness of the gospel faith? Will they be bold in their life for Jesus, their love of Jesus? Will they be bold in their sharing in the gospel, no matter the trials or tribulations or the difficulties? Or will they wilt? Will they wilt under the pressure and tribulation of this antichrist rhetoric and actions? How will they respond? We'll turn to our passage this morning. We'll find our answer there. But to help us understand this answer and its context and how it applies to us, let's go to the Lord in prayer so he may bless us with that understanding. So Lord, we pray for our understanding this morning. Help us to understand this passage and its context, but also help us understand how it is applied to us. And help us to think through how we will respond in the faith of Antichrist trials and tribulations and difficulties. Will we continue to be bold for the gospel? Or will we wilt under this? Send your spirit here among us, we pray. So we may hear your word. We may understand it. And he may apply it exactly where it needs to be applied in our minds, our hearts, our lives, and our faith. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 4, 23 through 31. And we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? 
and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to go to our house and walk into the kitchen, you would see different little colored post-it notes all over our counters. And on those post-it notes are lists. There's our, our kitchen list, our, our grocery list, I mean, uh, which has all of our handwriting on there. When we see something we need, we each have responsibility of, of writing out on that list what we need. Uh, if we're traveling, you'll find packing lists. Because inevitably, we're going to forget something, so we need packing lists. Uh, there's lists of things that we need to get done that day. Sometimes Beth keeps lists of things that get, needs to get done that day with our homeschooling. But many of us are familiar with this practice. We're familiar with the practice of, of making lists for reason, one reason or another. And these lists show a, a list of priorities. Of things that are important to us that, that we need to get done or we need to, we need to acquire. A, they are a list of priorities. And when we think about these lists, if you're like me, then, then your mind may end up somewhere along the line going to Christmas, our, our, our birthdays. And I'm sure we've all had the occasion when that holiday of Christmas is coming up or your birthday, uh, somebody in your family or somebody that you know and love comes to you and says, you need to make a list of what you want for gifts. You need to make a list of of, of what it is you want for Christmas or or for your birthday. And looking around this morning, I I see that many of us are the generation of catalogs. Do y'all remember those antiquated things you would get in the mail? Catalogs. And when my parents would come to me and say, James, you need to make a, a, a Christmas list. I would go and get the Sears catalog. And the J.C. Penny catalog, whatever I get my hand on, and I would make a list of what I wanted. Of course, nowadays all you have to do is go to Amazon and make a wish list. Um, my children just actually send me links and say, "Here, get me this," and you know that's how it works now. But back in the good old catalog days, we sit down with those catalogs and we go through. We make our wish list. We give them to our parents. And probably at some point, your parents looked at the list and handed it back to you and said, that's entirely too much. Your list is way too long. You need to figure out what it is you really want. So you sit back down with that list. And you have to think through it. What is it I really want? So you scratch this one off or circle this one or, or check this one until you had your list of priorities. And you take that back to your parents. Here's what I really want for my birthday. Here's what I really want for Christmas. Then you go to your room and you cross your fingers and your toes and you start praying and hoping you get what you've asked for. 
But we understand priorities. List of priorities. And we come to our passage this morning and we see the priorities of the Christians in the early days of the church. We see within this story of what was really important to the followers of Jesus Christ. As usual, Dr. Luke very carefully sets the scene for us. That Peter and John had gone together to the temple for prayers. As they come in, they've seen the lame man begging for food. And they heal him in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the man gets up and he starts leaping around. And and he's all excited. He's holding on to, to Peter and John. And of course, this gets the attention of the crowds gathered there that day. Because they knew this man. They knew he had been lame for some 40 odd years. Now, not only is he not lame anymore, but he's, he's walking, he's jumping, he's acting like a, 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 you know, we said before, like a, a toddler on a three-day sugar bend. And now they gather around. They gather around Peter and John because they want to know how this happened. Peter and John shared a gospel with them. You want to know how this lame man was healed? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. A word of what's happening gets out to religious leaders. And they come and they put Peter and John in jail for a night and then the next morning call them into the equivalent of the principal's office of the temple so they can be questioned by the Sanhedrin. And these Sanhedrin realize they have no good, solid evidence to, to bring further charges. So all they know to do is to tell Peter and John, do not talk anymore about Jesus Christ. Do not share the gospel. Peter and John respectfully but firmly tell them no. We will always teach about Jesus. And they leave the temple. And in our passage for this morning and for this week, Luke tells us that the very next thing that Peter and John do is they go to their friends. They go out the temple gates and they take a left and they go to see their friends. And I think it's worth asking, who are their friends? Who is it that's so important to them that before they do anything else, they're, they're just out of jail, they've just been questioned by the religious leaders and authorities, they know what this means. Who are these friends that are so important to them that's immediately who they go to? Well, we already know the answer, because Luke's already told us this in chapters 1 through 3. Their friends are as the church. Their, their friends is the church. So, so the idea here is that Peter and John leave the temple, Take a left, I would imagine, or whatever. And they immediately make their way to where the church is, to where all their friends are gathered. And I think that this is interesting. I think it gives us insight to how central the church and the fellowship of the church was for the early Christians. For them, it wasn't a, a once a week social club meeting where you go to, to see and to be seen. It wasn't just a one-hour commitment for them to fulfill and then move on to something else. It wasn't a family tradition for them to indulge in every once in a while. No, the church was much more central to them. So, so central was the church, so central was the fellowship of the church. That's where immediately they made their way after suffering these trials and tribulations. It's the top priority in their lives. It was important to them. And that's, I think, an important detail for us because that's a detail I believe still stands as an example for us today. I think oftentimes uh, 
We, we are tempted when we come to these parts of Scripture that, that maybe we don't like. That if we believe in what we define our lives and we don't like them, so we'll say, well, that's a cultural anomaly. That was, that was back then. And it doesn't apply to us now. We're more, we're more modern. We're more evolved. We've come further along. We're 21st century Christians, not 1st century Christians. This wasn't a cultural anomaly. This wasn't something they did back then because they didn't have the internet and, and, and social media and, and streaming. Now, what they do here, we see throughout Scripture, we see throughout the history of church, the church is central because the church is the bride of Christ. And we know in terms of marriage, if you have somebody else who's more important than your spouse, that's called adultery. It's adulterous for us to have someone else more important to us than Christ and his bride. Because his bride is our eternal family. This is our eternal family. So where else would they rather have gone to? Who else would they have rather have been with? So they take a left. And they go. And they tell them everything that happened from the moment they left them the day before to going to the temple, to healing the lame beggar, to, to, to sharing the temple. They shared with them everything. And Luke majors on details. He's a doctor. He's thorough. He likes details. It's interesting that here he says when they had gone or when they had gone to their friends and told them everything. He doesn't say anything about that afterwards about gathering together for a conversation to figure out what happened or to call a meeting of the leaders. Rather he says, Peter and John go, find their friends, find the church, tell them what happened and then they pray. It's this seamless transition of talking about what happened, hearing about what happened, and then they pray. And you know, I think that tells us, I think it tells us about how natural reaction prayer should be to God's people. Listen, when hard things happen to me, or difficult things come up in my life, I'm really good about griping about them. Beth can tell you, I'll come home and I need to talk to you. And we go talk. Or I call, I call some pastor friends and I say, I need to get this off my chest. I think it's easy for us when difficult things happen, we gripe, we moan, and then we may eventually get to prayer. There's no griping. There's no moaning. There's no writing a letter of protests. They go straight to prayer. And Luke emphasizes that this was a church prayer. It says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Let me read again with that emphasis. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They didn't say, Pastor, you pray. They didn't say, okay, what, what apostles are here? Okay, you pray. Luke emphasizes that everyone joined together in prayer. The natural reaction for the church 
was for the church to pray together in one voice, all for the same purpose. Luke is describing here a church prayer meeting. And that was their response. And the prayer that's recorded is a beautiful prayer. Not because it's eloquent, but because it's it's formed by Scripture. And it's centered on Christ. And this is how they pray in response to their situation. Again, prayer is their their first response to the situation. And this prayer was a Scripture-formed, Christ-centered prayer. This prayer, as we've read through it, and we'll read through parts of it here again in a moment, we find it is very much shaped by what God has said to them in Scripture. And we talked a little bit about this this morning in Sunday school. And all of you who were in Sunday school promised me you would not tune me out at this point. So I'm going to hold you to that promise. Somewhere in in the line of, of, of the history of the church, generally speaking, Christians have moved from praying Scripture are praying prayers that were obviously shaped by Scripture to now praying mainly extemporaneous prayers. We've moved from, from prayers that have the boundaries of Scripture, that, that put us on the lanes of Scripture, to now these, to these, to these breathy prayers. Of, oh God, this is about me. And I'm going to come to you and I'm going to pray all about me. Because me is the most important person you have ever known. And you need to answer me. The model we see here at this prayer, and the model we see at prayer in all scripture, is either the model of we pray scripture back to God. Are we pray prayers that are shaped by God and by his word? It's a prayer that is focused on God. And I think the best way we can, we can think of a prayer like that is to think of a funnel. And we know the shape of a funnel, right? It's, it's in the shape primarily of, of a triangle. And at the top of it is the, is the greatest amount there. And then it funnels down. And when we pray as we ought to, According to Scripture, as we pray our prayers that are shaped by Scripture, what we find is at the top of our prayer funnel is God. Who God is. And all the great things that God has done. And we pray like that, then it funnels down to ourself. Because what we find is when we pray in the light of who God is and what God has done, that puts all of our problems in perspective. It puts all of our desires in perspective. Now, we're not, it's not all for our glory. It's for the glory of God. Prayer is meant to be like that funnel. And we think of John the Baptist saying, I must decrease so God may increase. And that's the model of prayer. But the problem is we've, we've flipped that prayer around. And we're, we all can be guilty of it. We, we spend so much time on ourselves, yet so much little time on God. God's just become our sugar daddy. He, he's just who we go to to get things done for us. 
It's not for praise. It's not, it's not for glory. It's not for, it's not for adoration. It's not to put things in its proper perspective. It's just God is, a, is, our, is our servant. Here, do this. I need you to do this. I need you to take care of that. By the way, I think you're great. See you later. Bye. That's not the model of prayer in the church. Of all times for the church to be focused on herself would have been here. The very people who had killed their Jesus now knows about them. They now have a bullseye on them. And the church would have every right to say, God, we need your help. This is not a good situation. We're scared. But that's not what they do. Their prayer is first and foremost a focus on God. And from that, they pray for themselves in the light of who God is and what he has done. Many of us are familiar with the name Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church. And when you read about Luther, you find he was an incredibly busy man. There's the idea that his busyness actually killed him. The same with John Knox and and John Calvin and others as well. He was a professor. He was a pastor. He wrote books. He wrote tracts. He had correspondence. He did counseling. He rose a family. He was guiding the Reformation. There's a lot going on. And Luther would say this. Work, work from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much work to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours of it in prayer. Chances are, if you look at your day during this week, you're going to say, I've got to be going from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night. Your first reaction isn't going to be, let me wake up at 4 a.m. Have time in prayer for it. But that's what Luther did. And we have examples of these prayers where he would spend a majority of it focused on who God is and what he's done. Not for God to help him get stuff done, but he spent that time focusing on who God is and what he's done. And that put everything else in his perspective. You see, the example set for us by Jesus, set by, by his followers here, by followers throughout history, is that effective prayer isn't the prayer that's just a laundry list of us and ourselves. Effective prayer is the prayer that majors on and emphasizes the greatness of God and the gracious mercy of all that he has done and all he is doing. And look at how they began their prayer. Sovereign Lord. It's an interesting term. Because it's a term that expresses the total creative power and control of the Lord over all his physical creation and over the affairs of humanity. And the way they chose to open their prayer immediately set the focus on the fact that God is in control. The way they opened their prayer it was a reminder of his complete, holy, wise, and powerful ways that he preserves and governs every creature and every action. From the get-go, they are setting themselves in the light of the fact that their God is in control. And they say, Sovereign Lord, you're the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He is the Sovereign Lord who is the Creator. All things have been created by him. But there's also a contrast here. This God who is sovereign, this one who has created all things, is more than those who have put them on trial. He is above them. He is the great eternal king whose ways and plans and actions are eternal. This prayer is reminding them that what the religious leaders did in that day 
It's just maybe a slight blip on the eternal timeline because each of them will eventually die away and their actions and decisions will fade away. They are just temporary, but God is eternal. And so the God they worship, the God they follow is the one who is sovereign and eternal. And that will always put a different spin on things for us, won't it? When we have those trials, those tribulations, and those difficulties. When we bring them to God in the light of his sovereignty, the fact that he is creator, the fact that he is eternal over all things, we'll put that in a different light, won't it? Our situations begin to make maybe not more sense. I mean, that may not make sense to us, but will make more sense to us. When we see them in the light of who God is, that's the funnel of prayer, isn't it? God, you are sovereign. You're a creator. You are eternal. And I can trust in that. And so from that, the, script, the Christians then pray scripture. They pray back to God, Psalm 2. Because this psalm helps them to remember the truth and implications that God is sovereign and eternal. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings plot? You're the one who's in charge. And they can pray that and see it at work in the presence. Because of that psalm, they're able to understand that part of his fulfillment is what has happened in Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, who is Jesus Christ. This prayer reminds them, then praying back Psalm 2 reminds them that all these horrible things that have happened was part of God's plan for his people's salvation. This didn't happen by chance. This didn't happen by chaos. Matter of fact, they all go on to pray that not even the wrongful death of Jesus happens apart from God's sovereign will and control. That the certainty of God's plan for the world is established by his sovereign plan and is ensured by his almighty hands. Now this leads us into some interesting theological waters. And I'm going to try to keep us in there as briefly as possible. But there are people in the Christian world who see a lot of tension between the sovereignty of God and and human responsibility. And one has to outweigh the other. Either God is completely sovereign and rules in a sort of fatalistic way. Or man's responsibility, our responsibility, overweighs God's sovereignty and he has no control. And we think of it as a balance. What scripture teaches us is that these, uh, these two things are perfectly in balance with each other. It's the compatibility of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we see that here in how they describe the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That the murderers of Jesus acted in accord with what God had determined. Since before the beginning of time, this was God's plan. That Jesus would be crucified in this way by these people. The sovereign God had this perfect plan But yet these people, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Israelites, were responsible agents and accountable for their wickedness. 
In this prayer of faith, the believers affirm both God's sovereignty and and man's responsibility. This prayer, their faith, reflects both a deep acknowledgement of human responsibility, but also a deep trust in God's wisdom and his sovereign direction of the events of history. So what others see as tension, the believers here see simply as being a part of who God is and his interaction with his people. For them, there was no tension. It was comfort. They are comforting knowing that God had a perfect plan of salvation. But those people, Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and Israelites would face judgment for it. So they find comfort in affirming both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And from that comfort, they now pray for God's work to continue. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Again, the prayer up to this point has been all point all about who God is and what he has done. But now they focus on God at work in the present and through them, the, the prayer funnel has narrowed down to them. Now they are praying in the light of God's sovereignty, his eternal nature, his providence. And now they are praying that God would be at work through them. And did you notice what they prayed for? It wasn't protection. It wasn't deliverance. It wasn't for the bad people to be nice people. They prayed for boldness. Now, we can pray for protection. We can pray for deliverance. We can pray that bad people won't be that bad. But that wasn't their emphasis. That wasn't their main concern that day. Their main concern was boldness for the gospel. Even in the face of adversity, even in the face of trials and tribulations, they still wanted to be bold for Jesus. So so the aim of their prayer, their their scripture form, Christ-centered prayer, was to praise God and in the praising of God to ask him to continue to give them boldness in the gospel. Boldness for them to live out the gospel. Boldness for them to share the gospel. The boldness of that true Christian faith. And in that boldness, they ask that God would continue to work in signs. Derek Thomas explains All they're doing is they're praying heaven down. What we pray every week. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're praying God's, they're praying heaven down and that they will be bold to share that good news with everyone around them. And then Luke tells us that where they were praying began to shake. That's not an earthquake. That wasn't an 18-wheeler driving by. This was God's affirming their prayer. It's like in the movies when, 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 when a character finally gets something, uh, understands something, or, he, or, or, they, or they get it correct, and the, the, te- the, the teacher, the, the master, whoever it is, comes up and kind of grabs them by a shoulder and gives them this sort of, sort of gentle shake and affirmation. You got it. Good job. You, you, you've learned it. Good for you. And that's what God is doing here. That shaking is an affirmation of a prayer well prayed. This is God saying to him, you have prayed well, my good and faithful servants. 
And then in the, the work of the Holy Spirit, they go out and they continue to be bold in the faith. This prayer illustrates the way in which we should be emboldened and encouraged by God's sovereignty. No matter what's happening in our lives, we should be bold in the gospel and encouraged that God is always in control. God is always working all things for good. That God is always working out his perfect plan. That's where the Christian's boldness came from. They knew that God was in control. So even though these people had put their Jesus to death, their Jesus was resurrected. And their Jesus was ascended. And their Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, King Jesus. And he's still there. And he's still in control. And he's still at work. That faithful knowledge is meant to continue to give us boldness. How can we boldly love Christ as we ought to? Because God is in control. How can we boldly follow Christ as we should? Because as God is in control. How can we boldly share the gospel with others? Because God is in control. How can we boldly be authentic in faith and practice? Because God is in control. Remember, Jesus says to his people, if God is for us, then who can be against us? We can make that personal. If God is for me, then who can be against me? Satan is a defeated foe. This past week, I went to the post office. You can have some interesting conversations in the Winsboro post office. A lady talked to me. She realized I was a pastor. She said, you know, I've learned, I've got to be careful in how I pray. Because Satan is a God. And because Satan is a God, he can answer my prayers how he wants to. I thought, no. No, dear lady. There's only one God. Satan is a created being. Satan has to answer to God. He's a fallen angel. There's only one God. There's only one who is in control. There's only one who's sovereign, one who is eternal, one who is providential, one who is sovereign. And because of that, we are called to respond in the boldness of authentic faith, boldness of of living for his glory and for the good of his kingdom, and boldly to share his gospel. And that is meant to be the top priority of his people. Like it was for them here, it should be for us that we too will be bold in our love for the God who so boldly loves us. Let's pray together.